and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin on this interregnum between Christmas and the New Year to look back on the major stories that we covered in 2022 as they evolved, focusing on the growth of American fascism. We begin with a broadcast of Background Briefing from January the 3rd of 2022, on what patriotic Americans can do to save their democracy from the resurgence of plutocratic populism. Joining us was Ian Haney-Lopez, the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. We will discuss his essay at Protect Democracy, Can Democracy and the Democratic Party Survive Racism as a Strategy, an Argument for Race-Class Fusion Politics, and with Trump's GOP actively engineering an electoral coup following the failed attempt on January the 6th, we discuss how right-wing American oligarchs are playing with fire as plutocratic populism could soon morph into American fascism. And before we begin, as the end of the year approaches, when folks make their charitable donations, I hope our listeners and donors think of background briefing and reward our determination to keep this program free of commercial advertising, corporate underwriting, and not to mention paywalls. So if you're so inclined, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or to our tax-exempt nonprofit foundation, publictruthmedia.org, where your donations, large and small, will enable us to keep offering background briefing free to the public. And I wish you and yours the happiest of holidays. And joining us now is Ian Haney-Lopez, who is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his groundbreaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America and a former professor at Yale and Harvard Law Schools. He's the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. And he has an essay at Protect Democracy. Can Democracy and the Democratic Party Survive Racism as a Strategy? An Argument for Race-Class Fusion Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ian Haney-Lopez. Thank you so much. Glad to speak with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, we all know that Donald Trump announced his presidency at Trump Tower on the escalator demonizing Mexicans and then later Muslims. And that's a tried and true tactic that the the Nazis and Hitler used in the 30s, the internal enemy. First, of course, it was the leftists and the communists and then later the Jews. So I know that using the word fascism is often thrown around rather loosely, but it does feel like in many ways what's happening to this country is in a way following the footsteps of Germany in the 30s. How, how do you see the, particularly as this new year begins? I, I don't think fascism applied so easily four years ago, five years ago. But I think that every American needs to rethink what's happening with the country in light of 2021. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of an insurrection, a a storming of Congress to try and stop democratic processes 
And even a year ago, on January 6th, it might have seemed like, well, that was a political rally that, that got out of hand. But the more we know, the more we understand that that was actually part of a larger strategy to sow chaos, to disrupt the certification of the election, and to give the Trump administration time to pursue a plan to upend the will of the American people and to seize power. And and I think we know one other thing after 2021 that's incredibly important, and that is that the coup that was attempted on January 6th has not been repudiated by the Republican Party, but that on the contrary, many Republicans are engaged in a contemporary slow motion coup. And that takes the form of legitimating, indeed um, um, turning into heroes, the, the people involved in the January 6th insurrection, but also changing the rules of democracy itself in terms of voter disenfranchisement, in terms of gerrymandering, in terms of uh, Republican Party officials taking control of elections. And I think it's that the combination of an internal enemy, the demonization of fellow Americans, combined with an attempt to hijack democratic processes and a turn towards anti-democratic means to retain power against the will of the majority. It's under those circumstances that, scary as it is, we need to face a word like fascism as a descriptor of our reality, because I I don't think we've seen a moment as perilous as this for the United States as a country since the eve of the Civil War. Well, you could argue, Ian Haney Lopez, that there is a similar secession underway and perhaps even more successful than the Confederacy in as much as a lot of Americans in the red states and particularly in Florida and, and in Texas where they are creating a tyranny of the minority. It seems that a lot of red state Americans and on the right and Trump supporters don't want to live with the rest of America and that they want to create a kind of a tyranny of the minority and make us all permanent second-class citizens. And in four days' time, there'll be the the anniversary of January the 6th, which Trump is apparently doing a press conference down at Mar-a-Lago. But the point that you just made, I think, is the really telling one, that what they got wrong on January the 6th, where they came close, they've worked hard to fix those holes in their strategy so that next time around, they succeed. I think that's right. And I think that the, the, the one thing that I would emphasize when we say tyranny of the mi- minority is I, I think we really have to be very clear about where the threat to American democracy is coming from. And yes, it's true that Americans are increasingly pitted against each other and that there's a, a strain of antisocial of violence and vigilantism and conspiracy thinking among a lot of Trump supporters, especially the QAnon folks. But that's not the real locus of the threat. I think the threat is behind those folks in the propaganda machinery that is systematically lying to people and telling people that um, they're in danger from other Americans. And behind that propaganda machine, in turn, 
are things like the Coke Donor Network and the Mercer family um, and people like Steve Bannon. Um, that is, there are billionaires and collections, networks of billionaires who see an advantage to themselves in turning Americans against each other so that they can more easily control government for their own selfish interest to ensure there's no um, regulation of petrochemical industries or, or effective environmental regulation to ensure that corporations and wealthy family dynasties continue to have uh, historically low tax rates. That is, the minority that threatens us is not 40% of Americans who believe the Fox News propaganda. It's the minority who controls Fox News propaganda, the minority who controls the sort of the Heritage Foundation and the Manhattan Institute, these so-called think tanks that are actually right-wing right propaganda machines extolling the virtues of rule by the rich. That's where the real threat is coming from. And we really need to turn our, our attention to it so that, so that we ourselves don't fall into this trap of thinking that the biggest threat in our lives comes from large swaths of other Americans. But instead, we recognize the biggest threat to American democracy comes from the greedy rich who have incredible wealth and power and are using it. And, and I say the greedy rich. I just want to be very clear. I don't mean all the rich. No. I mean, I mean, what, what FDR You're talking about Peter the malefactors. <laughs> yes, exactly. What, yeah. what FDR would call the malefactors of great wealth, the people who are convinced that society should run for the benefit of the wealthy and they're willing to use their excessive wealth to bend society in the direction of their own will. Right. Those are the people who threaten us. And their, and their method is promote a propaganda of fear and hysteria and an internal enemy that threatens us, convince people to turn against each other so that they might more easily, they, the, the, the Coke donor network, might more easily control politicians uh, and, and buy American democracy. So what you're describing, Ian Hainley-Lopez, is plutocratic populism. Exactly. Or, or plutocratic rule through the promotion of a white nationalist populism that has the effect of turning us against each other and, and destroying our society while also ensuring we cannot solve major social problems like a pandemic, like enormous wealth inequality, such as imminent environmental collapse, such as debt burdens that are overwhelming vast majorities of Americans. We can't solve any of those problems. And the reason we can't solve them is because plutocrats are convincing us that the real source of threat in our lives comes from each other and that we shouldn't work together. And again, I'm speaking with Ian Haney-Lopez, Chief Justice Earl Warren, Professor of Public Law at the University of California, Berkeley. 
and an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his groundbreaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America, and he is the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America, and he has an essay at Protect Democracy, Can Democracy and the Democratic Party Survive Racism as a Strategy, an Argument for Race-Class Fusion Politics. So let's talk about what the Democrats can and should do in terms of what you call race-left language that's not being persuasive. Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that the right is using racial rhetoric as a means of dividing people against each other, of scaring people, and also that this is incredibly effective, not just with white voters, but with voters of color. And I think that this is the big shock. You're so right to say, you know, let's, let's track the rise of Donald Trump back to 2015 when he descends the elevator and capitalizing on his anti-Obama birtherism rhetoric, he starts his electoral campaign by insulting people coming from Mexico as rapists. If we start there, though, we also have to add that in a way that's absolutely stunning, in 2020, Donald Trump won more support compared to 2016 among Latinos, among Asian Americans, among African Americans. That is, from 2016 to 2020, Donald Trump increased his support from every major non-white racial group at the same time that he campaigned on themes of racial threat. And, And this is hard to understand. This is hard to get our head around. How could it be that somebody who campaigns so explicitly on narratives of white racial anxiety simultaneously gained support from Latinos, African Americans, and Asian Americans? And the explanation is that though the themes were themes of racial threat, the language was a language of good people versus bad people, innocent and law-abiding and hardworking people versus people who are undeserving and dangerous and violent. And using that sort of rhetoric, Donald Trump managed to gain support among lots of people, including many people of color, who want to understand themselves as the good ones and not the bad ones, not the the threat, the undeserving. That's the challenge for for the Democratic Party. And to put a label on it, that is the challenge of identity politics. The right is really, really good at identity politics, a politics that says people vote in terms of a story about who they are in society, whether they're respected or welcomed or whether instead they're threatening and undeserving. People vote in terms of a story about who threatens them and who will support them. That's identity politics. That's the way the right has been campaigning for 50 years. Democrats, when it comes to identity politics, are instead at war with each other. 
So some Democrats say we need an identity story that's all about racial justice for communities of color. And implicitly, this is an identity story that makes whites the problem in society. And other Democrats turn around and say, wow, that kind of an identity story is going to lose a lot of white voters. Why don't we just talk about policy, which is to say they reject the idea that Democrats should be talking about identity at all. And you can just see what an enormous mistake that is if the right is talking about identity all the time. It's not going to work for Democrats to say, well, we don't really want to talk about identity. We, we know that the Republicans are showing, um, you know, some horror movie and surround sound. We want our voters to turn to we can review and talk policy. It's never going to work. It's not, it's not how politics works. What Democrats need is an identity story that brings together a multiracial working class coalition. And that's the agenda. And, and the way to craft that identity story is not by ignoring racism, certainly not by emphasizing policy divorced from identity. Rather, the way to craft that story is to tell a story about racism as a weapon being used by the very few against all of us. And all of us being better off when we build power across racial lines, when we tackle problems of racial inequity, when we create an integrated society in which we really take care of each other. That's the identity story that Democrats need to get behind. Well, if you look at one of the most popular memes now on the right, and that is this Let's Go Brandon, which is obviously a clever right-wing fusion of all of the owning the libs, the idea that some reporter at a NASCAR event when the crowd was saying, F Biden, F Biden, he, he said that they were saying, let's go, Brandon, who's interviewing a, a NASCAR driver, Brandon. So that seems to be so popular because it, it touches all the bases, doesn't it? Owning the libs, the liberal media being the, the target. It also gives them permission to say F you to the president of the United States, does it not? It, it does. And in a way that, you know, that they can then pretend that it's just a joke and that exactly. people don't you know, yeah. need to have a sense of humor. Well, how do you disarm that mentality, though, that finds that comforting and amusing and that feels that people like you and I are just, you know, idiots, that uh, soy boys, we're weak and facile and don't get it somehow or other? So, so one thing is to be clear that we don't need to completely disarm it. As somebody who's been focusing on the use of race in American politics, I've worked beyond the academy. I've worked with unions. I've worked with communication specialists and pollsters to really get out in the field and understand how political rhetoric is working. And in that research, it, it seems clear that there's about 20%, which is to say one in five Americans who are really deeply committed to a right-wing view of American politics. And I would describe this view as saying, as is encompassing, I would describe this view as encompassing three elements. 
a dislike or distrust of people of color, a hatred of government, a sense that social progress really depends on the rich and on individual effort, right? So we're not going to reach those folks ever. At the same time, there's a slightly greater number, 21, 22% of Americans who are committed to what I would call a progressive worldview. They believe government has the power and the authority to create routes of upward mobility for the working class. They feel warmly towards people of color. Um, they believe that it's circumstances more than individual effort that have a lot to do with people's life experiences. We've got those folks already. That leaves about 60% who shift between or combine different aspects of these worldviews. That's who we're really trying to talk to. So we don't, we don't need to reach the people <laughs> who chortle and put a let's go Brandon bumper sticker on their pickup truck. That's not who we need to reach. We need to reach 60, 70% of Americans who want to know how we get through this pandemic together, how we ensure that the planet has an environment that is healthy for our children and our grandchildren, how we create routes of upward mobility so that our children have a better quality of life than we do. And we need to speak to those folks in plain, accessible terms but in identity terms, not in policy terms, in identity terms. And by identity, I mean in a language that says we're all in this together, we're doing the best we can, but some people, dangerous people, are intentionally trying to divide us, whether that's the Koch brothers or Tucker Carlson. When they divide us, they laugh all the way to the bank. When we come together and fight for each other, even across lines of difference, that's when we can take care of our own family in addition to our communities and our state and our country. That's the story we need. And I want to be very clear. This is a story that works um, in urban areas and heavily democratic areas, but it's also a story that works in rural America. There's a group, People's Action, that serves as an umbrella organization or trying to organize people in rural America. Rural America is much more racially diverse than most people think. Um, people in rural America really are thinking in terms of uh, where does the threat come from? These are hard times. We're, we're, we're struggling to, to make it. Um, the right, Fox News is telling them all the time the threat comes from Muslims, it comes from Latinos, it comes from China. What people's action has found out is if they respond by saying, no, the threat is coming from Wall Street. The threat is coming from greedy billionaires and petrochemical industries. Let's build power with our neighbors. That works in rural America. Um, and I should add, in, in, in our testing, that sort of message of cross-racial solidarity to make sure that we can take care of our, um, our own families that's the most popular political message with Latinos, with African-Americans, with Asian-Americans, and also with white Americans. There really is a powerful identity story that, um, that is available to, to the Democratic Party right now. What it requires, though, is that the Democratic Party leadership 
commit to a story of racial solidarity in the service of taking care of working class Americans, of working families in America. That's the push. That's where I think it's so important that progressives push the Democratic Party to say, we need a party committed to cross-racial, cross-class solidarity to take care of all of us. Well, Ian Haney Lopez, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And again, I'll be speaking with Ian Haney Lopez, who is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. And he has an essay at Protect Democracy, Can Democracy and the Democratic Party Survive Racism as a Strategy, an Argument for Race-Class Fusion Politics. And that was a broadcast of Background Briefing from January the 3rd of 2022. And we'll take a brief station break and be back with another background briefing from June the 23rd of 2022. The deputy sheriffs, the soldiers, the governors get paid. And the marshals and cops get the same. But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool. He's taught in his school From the start by the rule That the laws are with him To protect his white skin To keep up his heat So he never thinks straight About the shape that he's in Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and we are now going to a broadcast from June the 23rd of 2022 about Trump's pressure campaign on the Department of Justice and pardons sought by the GOP's most ardent Trumpsters. We begin with that day's hearing of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, which focused on the pressure Trump put on the Department of Justice to get the DOJ to add its credibility to Trump's bogus Stop the Steal lies. Joining us was Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency. His books include The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way of Predicting the Next President, and his prediction systems have correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. The author of the national bestseller, The Case for Impeachment, his most recent books are the embattled vote in America, and repeal the Second Amendment, the case for a safer America. We discuss the revelations in the Oval Office from top DOJ officials appointed by Trump on how Republican Congressman Perry, Gates, Brooks, Gomet, Biggs, and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene all sought pardons from Trump, presumably because they knew they broke the law. And joining us now is Alan Lickman, who is a professor a political science and an historian at American University who studied the American right and the presidency. His books include The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President, and his prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. He's the author of the national bestseller, The Case for Impeachment, and his most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, and repeal the Second Amendment, the case for a safer America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Lickman. 
Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us, Alan. What did you make of today's hearings where the focus was on the pressure that was put on the Justice Department by Donald Trump and the acting attorney general and his and his deputy were witnesses and uh, the testimony was pretty damning as as is all the previous testimony so what did you think of today's testimony it chilled me to the bone and it chilled me to the bone because it pointed out how close trump came to pulling off his coup he came so close to pulling off his coup that the White House had announced that his sycophant, uh, Jeffrey Clark, who was going to throw a huge monkey wrench in the election with allegations of fraud, was already announced as acting attorney general. So, Alan, um, I found uh, the description of the meeting in the Oval Office, what, a couple of days before January the 6th, really extraordinary how... He had his White House lawyer there, Pat Cipollone, his deputy. He had the two guys that testified today, Rosen and Donahue, and the third guy, too, that testified as well. And then you had this this <laughs> ridiculous character, Jeffrey Clark, whose house was the subject of an FBI dawn um, raid, and he was had to stand outside the house in his pajamas while they went through his stuff. But the f- the frankness with which in front of Trump, they kept telling Jeffrey Clark, you're completely unqualified. You're an, you're an yeah. idiot. You're a yeah. joke. I mean, but yeah. this is what Trump's about, isn't it? I mean, he'll scrape to the well, bottom of no the barrel. Joke. It's no joke. It chilled me to the bone because it revealed just how close Trump claimed to pulling off his coup. He was so close to making... Jeffrey Clark, his sycophant, who was going to throw a huge monkey wrench into into the election process right before January 6th as attorney general. The White House even announced Jeffrey Clark as the acting attorney general. And it was only thwarted at the 11th hour and the 59th minute by the threat of mass resignations by the entire leadership of justice. And that persuaded Trump, not because uh, he was cared about the truth of the matter, because that would look so bad for him. As one of the uh, officials put it, uh, Mr. Clark would be presiding over a graveyard, as his White House counsel, Mr. Cipollone, put it. This was a murder-suicide pact, but it's one that came within inches of succeeding. And let's also remember You know, despite all of Trump's claims that this is just a bunch of Democrats, you know, attacking him in a witch hunt, all of those witnesses were loyal Republicans appointed by Donald Trump as the head of the Office of Legal Counsel. Mr. Engel said, I've been with you, Mr. Trump, throughout this process, but this is a bridge too far and I can't go with you. The other thing that I think both this hearing and uh, all the other hearings have made clear how ridiculous it is. And so many commentators have made this mistake to even think about, well, did Donald Trump really believe that the election was stolen? That completely misunderstands Donald Trump. There is no concept of truth as fact for Donald Trump. 
truth is purely transactional for Donald Trump. This is a guy who said, my net worth is whatever I decide it's going to be at a given day, or, you know, uh, that it's okay to use uh, hyperbole when I only decide how far the hyperbole goes and cooking up deals, you know, documented by the Washington Post, tens of thousands of lies during his presidency. Trump never cared. And this hearing made it so clear one way or the other about the truth of election fraud. This was always just a transactional instrument on his part, not to uphold some principle, but simply to illegally stay in power. That's why he bounced from one justification to another, because it was never an issue of what the truth was. It was simply, what can I use to stay in power? Stay in power, and at this point, he's making a comeback, and there's a possibility that he might declare his presidency relatively soon in order to give him some protection, even though the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department has this ruling that no sitting president can be indicted. But the idea that he he would be a candidate may help him in that regard. But I, I bring this up because this man is clearly... One, he wanted to hold on to power at all costs and would come up with anything. It didn't matter, as you point out. It's all just ridiculous to even even repeat his lies and, and as they piled up. But isn't he really all about getting back to the presidency to protect himself with that OLC decision that he can't be indicted? Yes. I mean, isn't yes. that what's driving That's, him? Yes. And, you know, more broadly... What is also so chilling here is the coup is not over. The coup was so narrowly thwarted the last time, but it may not be thwarted the next time. You know, there are a lot of Trump election deniers running for critical positions. For example, the governorship of Pennsylvania, secretaries of state positions throughout the country. And, you know, you may not have a Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia, standing up the next time around. It's really very, very frightening. Look, uh, Trump can be indicted. He's not a sitting president anymore. I never understood what went on in the uh, New York uh, AG's office. You know, three years they're sitting on all this incredibly explosive information about Trump's tax fraud, you know. It was admitted that he inflated one property by $200 million. You know, if you own a a few rental properties, you know, say worth a million dollars, you claim they're really worth 20 million. You take a $6 million tax deduction. You'd be in jail faster than you can say Mitch McConnell. You know, what were those prosecutors? What is that prosecutor thinking? Or, you know, what in the world is Merrick Garland doing? You know, I know Merrick. He's an old friend of mine. I've known him since the 60s. I thought he was maybe the best judge in America. I just wonder if he has the temperament to be a prosecutor. I'm still giving him the benefit of the doubt, but he's got to move quickly. You know, there are so many crimes that Trump has committed that are indictable. And, you know, Republicans, when they were prosecuting Bill Clinton and impeaching him, kept intoning, no one is above the law. The same law applies to the peasant and the king. Why isn't the law being applied to Donald Trump? You know, throughout his life, and I point this out in my book, 
the case for impeachment. He's never been held accountable for anything. It's high time he does. The future of our republic may depend upon it. So do you think it would be helpful, though, as much as they've gone to great lengths, the committee, to show how much he's lied and how Giuliani, his consigliere, never provided any real evidence? It's just, you know, I won and and Biden lost and without any facts involved. They've very painstakingly made that case. But surely the, the real trajectory here is, as January the 6th was an attempted fascist coup, this is fascist, fascist coup 2.0. This is, as you point out, they've even got more advantages this time because they've got people in, installed in Secretary of State's offices that will go along with uh, Trump's lies. So would it be helpful, do you think, to contextualize this whole committee hearing in the context of this is America's chance to avoid American fascism because it's just around the corner? Well, I'm a little reluctant to use that term because once you use that term, a lot of people in the middle think it's hyperbole and you're overstating. I prefer to say this is perhaps... America's last chance to save our democracy. This is one of the inflection points in our democracy. We've had them before, the contested elections of 1800, 1876, and 2000, of course, in the Civil War and in Watergate. And we've come through all of those, sometimes very narrowly, but there's no guarantee that democracy will survive. Democracy is precious, but precious things can be destroyed. You know, in the golden age of democracy after World War One, we went from almost nothing to about two dozen democracies. That was down to 11 by the early 1940s. And it is not guaranteed that our democracy is going to survive. You know, I've been telling everyone I know, look, I understand the problems of inflation and the economy. But you know what? Inflation comes and goes. And the truth is, there's not much a president can do about inflation because bigger economic forces drive it and the Republicans don't have an answer for it anyway. But once you lose your democracy, it's gone. You're not going to get it back. So you've got to take a longer term view and prioritize the saving of democracy above anything else. So you were suggesting that you're not entirely confident that Merrick Garland is the prosecutor that's needed. This case is being handed to him on a platter by this committee because anybody who's watched these hearings, and I wish more Americans, and particularly Trump supporters and Republicans, had watched it um, because they're avidly refusing to do so. But this is clearly Trump's Republican Party today. And his people that reflect his kind of character or the lack thereof were all named today as wanting to seek pardons. Uh, so, Unbelievable. And, and yeah. as, as Adam Kissinger said, uh, the only reason I know to ask for a pardon is because you think you've committed a crime. So this means that Representative Scott Perry, Representative Matt Gates, Representative Mo Brooks, Representative Louis Gohmert, Representative Andy Biggs, and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene could be in a lot of trouble, and they are the face of the new GOP, are they not? They are, and I think they're all in trouble. I think uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Steve Bannon, a host of other uh, 
Jeffrey Clark, a host of other Trump loyalists are in deep trouble uh, as well. But the question is, you know, will prosecutors have the courage and the backbone to do something about this? If they don't, then Trump and his cronies are going to continue to do it. You know, I've been an athlete all my life. And one thing I've learned from sports, and sports is a good metaphor for life. uh, If you're successful at something in sports, you keep doing it until you're stopped. And same thing here. Trump's going to keep doing what he's doing. His allies are going to keep doing what he's doing until he's stopped. And the only way to be that he's going to be stopped is to hold him accountable under the law. You know, I've said you can summarize the problems of American politics right now in four words, immoral Republicans, spineless Democrats. You know, we've all heard that quotation. It's not just the evil people who create tragedies in the world. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing. And so far, uh, Democratic prosecutors, you know, from New York to the DOJ have done nothing. Now, they still have time to do something. But if they don't act, then I think our republic is in very serious peril. Well, the case that bothers you, and it certainly bothers me, Alan, of course, is is the New York District Attorney's case. And it looks like they had a really solid case. And remember, the two really experienced prosecutors quit in protest because the new DA, Alvin Bragg, just dropped the whole case without any explanation. So given the corruption of Trump and his conciliary, Rudy Giuliani, and their background in New York, with their sort of mafia-like behavior and the tutoring of Roy Cohn and the general mob boss attitude that Trump has, uh, it's not entirely out of the question that somehow Alvin Bragg's got something to answer to. Yeah, I, I just have no idea. I'm, uh, you know, there's an old English expression called being gobsmacked. I'm gobsmacked by the inaction in New York. But even before Bragg took over, they were sitting on it for over two years. You know, some of the tax returns were leaked by uh, the New York Times years ago. And I'm no expert, but I do my own taxes. And it was patently obvious, you know, what that Trump was cheating on his taxes. You know, what took two to three years to figure this out? I don't get it. I'm, as I said, I'm gobsmacked by whatever it is that seems to paralyze these Democratic prosecutors from doing the right thing. Well, um, just in closing, it looks as if having a couple of Republicans on this panel makes all the difference with Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Yes, it's critical that you have the two Republicans. And also, I would remind everyone It's not a bunch of Democratic witnesses that are giving this incredibly damning testimony regarding Donald Trump and his top allies. It's all loyal, conservative Republicans. Uh, Speaker Bowers in Arizona, who gave some of the most daring testimony, even went so far as to say, I vote for Trump again, even though I've just said he's tried to destroy our Constitution. So it's Republicans who are sinking Trump, not Democrats. Well, Alan Lickman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Take care. Bye-bye. And again, I'll be speaking with Alan Lickman, who teaches political science and is an historian at American University who studied both the American right and the presidency. 
His books include The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President, and his prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted Trump victory. He's the author of the national bestsellers, The Case for Impeachment, and his most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America and Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. And that was a broadcast of background briefing from June the 23rd of 2022. And we'll take a brief station break and be back with another background briefing from July the 24th of 2022. There's a great and a bloody fight around this whole world tonight In the battle of bombs and shrapnel rain Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down But our union's gonna break them slavery chains And our union's gonna break them slavery chains I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and we now go into a broadcast from July the 24th of 2022 on how American fascism was never exercised but was obscured beneath romantic myth-making. We examined the rise of the right and assess the size of the coalition of white supremacists, confederates, Christian nationalists, right-wing militias, alt-right neo-Nazis and American firsters. Joining us was Sarah Churchwell, a professor of American Literature and Humanities at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London. She is the author of Behold America, The Entangled History of America First, and The American Dream. And her latest book is The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. And joining us now is Sarah Churchwell, a professor of American Literature and Humanities at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London. She's the author of Behold America, The Entangled History of America First, and The American Dream. And her latest book just out is The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind, and The Lies America Tells. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Churchwell. Thank you so much. So I take it one of the things that... uh, propelled you to write this new book, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells, is the fact that you're living in London, you're an American abroad, and people are coming up to you all the time saying, what's happened to America? What's what's going on? What's happening in America? What the hell's happened to America? So <laughs> this is your defen- <laughs> yeah, defense <literally>. mechanism. <laughs> right. Well, it's it's just an answer to the question, right? It's saying that this is this is a serious question and an understandable one, and um, and and yeah, it is something that I get asked literally in so many words all of the time, not just you know in professional situations, but socially, you know, everybody just wants to know, and so um, and and particularly, you know, that came to a head, of course, around this January sixth insurrection, and I will call it an insurrection, uh, not a riot, um, last year when the whole world was just watching, you know, with their head clutched in their hands saying, what is going on? And uh, and for me, it was, um, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And in fact, I've been, I've been drafting the book in, in uh, various, you know, versions and, and working on it, and then realized when the insurrection happened, that I that I needed to do yet another draft because it actually had to take this into account and that what what I was seeing what we were all seeing unfold in front of us was just further affirmation 
of an intuition that I'd had five years ago, four or five years ago, um, that that Gone with the Wind was the story that could help us understand the mess that we're in. Um, although Gone with the Wind can only do it mostly by accident, <laughs> but still, if you if you look carefully at what Gone with the Wind is doing um, and understand the history that it's lying about, and then some of the other aspects of American history that we've consistently lied about, some big aspects, and bring all of those together, then you can, you, you can begin to understand how violence erupted last year. And, of course, we all remember the Confederate flag being hauled through the Congress by one of the rioters or insurrectionists. And uh, that, of course, after a bit of civil war, that's probably the first and only time that ever happened in the in U.S. Capitol. Exactly. Precisely, so, the first time in history, and, and, and not after Civil War, right? That was the whole point. The Civil War was fought to stop that from happening. Right. And, then the, and, and they successfully stopped it from happening. The Confederate flag never flew in the U.S. Capitol. It was represented once or twice, but not the flag. And, um, and, then, and, and then, as you say, there was this famous, one of the more iconic images from the insurrection was of this man parading past the Senate chamber holding it aloft. And, and you know, I begin the book by saying for anybody who understands the full history, the full history of what that flag represents, and the story of how America fought over it and the 160 years that have passed since then, you really have to understand that full history to, 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 to fully grasp what a shocking sight that was and, and, frankly, what a revolting sight it was and to understand what, it, what that moment represented about, again, the lies that America held um, and, the, and the lies about the Confederate flag are, are one among, among many. Um, that 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 need to be understood for as I say for the symbolism for the dark symbolism of that moment to be to be fully grasped. So, what did you make of the? Well, it's not the final hearing, but at least they're taking a recess to the January sixth committee through August, and they'll be back in September. But they did have a prime time hearing on Thursday, which presumably, since it was on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN and MSNBC and PBS uh, probably got pretty high ratings. What did you make of it, Sarah? <laughs> well, I think, um, I think they're doing a tremendous job. It's, it's, um, it's a, a relief, frankly, to see um, the, the case being made for democracy and against the, the corruption and the crookedness of the Trump administration to be, to be made through the kinds of showmanship that enabled Trump to leverage his celebrity profile, uh, you know, to, to the White House, literally, you know, to get him to the White House. He was manipulating the media, uh, as we all know, to a great extent and, and, and understanding how to use um, both mainstream media and social media to his own advantage. And finally, we're seeing, you know, the side of democracy hit back, I think, with with equal force and much more integrity and much more principle. And what we are seeing is, is the force of fact finally being, being brought to bear against this pathological liar and his, uh, you know, compulsively pathological liar. And again, the world saw that. Um, and his array of, of, you know, fake news and alternative facts and alternative histories and all of this propaganda and disinformation that swirls around Trump and then to see this powerful piece of very carefully constructed evidence building to explode the lie, just to take apart this mantle of a big lie, and to do it with absolutely compelling television and 
you know, I think one of the really important things that they've done is understand how this, finally understand how this stuff um, circulates in social media and the media sphere. And so to um, create digestible moments, but again, they're digestible moments of fact-telling and truth-telling. And I think it's like, for, it's like, a, a, it's like a political cleanse um, to just finally watch them wash some of the filth out of the American political system that has been clogging it for so many years. And, and, and it, it, it does feel like a breath of fresh air. You sit there just thinking, you know, I feel my shoulders kind of relax. And it's like, oh, there at last, there's the truth. There's facts. There's documented, uh, you know, evidence and, and witness testimony and, and carefully constructing this, this story piece by piece in a way that, that anyone except the absolutely most, you know, biased, and willfully blind, I think, has to accept the, the legitimacy of the story they tell. And again, I'm speaking with Sarah Churchwell, who's a professor of American Literature and Humanities at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London. She's the author of Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and The American Dream. And her latest book, Just Out, is The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. And in terms of Trump being the head of the GOP and, and all but announced that he's running again in spite of the evidence that, against him that's been presented by the January 6th committee, we're learning now from Jonathan Swan at Axios that the former president and his allies are preparing to radically reshape the federal government if he's re-elected and they're going to fire thousands and thousands of civil servants and put in loyalists to him and Trump's America First ideology. And they're not just going after the typical targets of, of the right wing and the EPA and the IRS, but they're going to go after the Justice Department, the FBI, and the National Security and Intelligence Establishment, the State Department, and the Pentagon. So these are apparently, I mean, if you read the article, it's pretty scary. These are the, oh, I've read it. <laughs> yeah. So what do yeah, you make yeah. of it? Well, I mean, I agree. It's pretty scary. And but it's also not remotely surprising. Um, and I've, I've I mean, I'm, I was frankly surprised that they were so disorganized and hapless through most of the administration. But um, but now, of course, they're 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 mustering their forces and their arguments because they've seen how successful it was even when they were disorganized and chaotic. And there have been indications that they've been thinking along these lines for some time. I included in my book a um, an essay that came out last year uh, from a, a right-wing think tank talking about the plan to install an American Caesar. And first they talked about this figure in abstract terms, um, and then they, they quickly started referring to him directly as Trump and talking about how um, from the inauguration, from the, that in the inauguration he would declare a state of emergency and declare himself you know, effectively a kind of dictator president. What you're describing, what the Axios article describes, is basically our Orban politics. And we know they're following Orban. We know that, you know, Tucker Carlson is, is lauding Orban to, you know, to, um, to Fox viewers. And, and we know that Republican leaders are, are extolling him. They're talking about him at CPAC and the conservative conferences. So we've known about this for some time. And, and it's just really the, the logical next step. And, and the fact is, and it's a playbook, right? They're following it. And they, they describe these appointees that this, it was an executive order that Trump passed that then Biden immediately rescinded. But um, they're saying they will now restore where, uh, where Trump is. Uh, they've created this thing that they're calling F-level, F or Fox, right? Um, level appointees. And, um, and I just said F for Fox, but it's also F for fascism. I mean, it just it is just textbook fascism, gutting the government, gutting the civil service, 
and replacing it with pure loyalists. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and they've already been trying to do that with the judiciary. That was what they did throughout Trump's administration to, you know, certain great effect. And they're also talking about stuffing the state legislatures with Trump loyalists as well and passing laws that would enable them to overturn election results that they didn't like. So, um, you know, they, 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 they're getting all of the machinery in motion so that if he is able to take power again, the full authoritarian turn will take place and, and, um, and, and they will have total control of the government. And it is an Orban-style plan. That's what, they, that's what they want to do. And um, so, as I say, I, I, found it, I found it shocking but not surprising, as they say now. I mean, it's a horrifying thing to read, but it's absolutely what they've been, they've been trialing. This idea for some time, and Trump started doing it before, you know, after he lost the election and before the um, insurrection in the um, in the interim. He, you know, that's exactly what he was trying to do: was firing people who were who were saying that Biden had won and and replacing replacing those uh, people with his loyal his loyalists. So he's already been doing it. It's just it's just being more systematic about it. So, since you've written about the American First movement in your book, The Entangled History of America First. What's your sense of uh, the kind of numbers in this country? Because one of the things that's so appalling about the current political mood on the political left in this country amongst progressives is that as opposed to Tucker Carlson and the right, which is animated and active and have these dark plans, a lot of the progressive left is just sort of disappointed in Biden uh, and they're more disappointed in Biden than they are alarmed at the possibility, which is real and present danger, of American fascism? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question about how, about the state of the Democratic Party and the, and, and the left, and, um, you know, not something I can probably do in a, in a thumbnail, but, but I would just say a couple of things. I, I think that there is, um, you know, I do think that, that the Democratic leadership have, by and large, failed to fight fire with fire. They have not um, been nearly as ruthless as as they need to be against these kinds of tactics, in my view, it does seem clear that you know Biden is Biden is bound and determined to to you know to to, to believe that uh, almost a sheer force of will or hope that he can return to a kind of you know bipartisan um, politics, and that and that the people across the aisle are his friends rather than um, absolutely uh, ex- you know existentially committed to the eradication of the left. So I think you know that's that's a problem, and I think that it's it, as you say, it's also a problem that the Democrats are you know uh, attacking each other. I think that's true to a certain degree, but it's also clear that there is an enormous amount of anger and uh, resistance and defiance um, to the right as well. And I think we can overstate these these stories, and of course they serve the right as well. The whole Dems in disarray uh, story about you know that the, that the media likes to likes to tell. And the, but the numbers that the, the, the viewing numbers that the um, J6 hearings are getting um, speak to the concern of, you know, wide sways of the American uh, public about this. And, um, and certainly the numbers, just to get the most obvious and most recent example, the numbers in, uh, you know, in relation to the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade are, are you know, pretty undeniable and the support for gay marriage um, equally undeniable. So I think that the, the concomitant hostility to the radical minority right um, is deep and real. It's just, I do think there's a certain extent to where the political horse racing media likes to talk about the guns in disarray. And that's there. I'm not denying its existence, but I think it can be overplayed. Well, the hope is it's a silent majority. There's, you know, the sleeping giant will 
arise before November. But I'm curious yeah. if indeed there's any kind of polling of any kind of figures that we can pin about the coalition on the right, you know, which I guess is a coalition of southern racists, libertarian billionaires, right-wing militias, Christian nationalists, alt-right, and American firsters. So what kind of numbers are we talking about? Because it's clearly there are more people appalled at the possibility of Trump returning than there are excited by it. And Biden did win 7 million plus more votes than Trump. Trump, of course, is only focused and understands he could never win the popular vote. Is focused entirely on the Electoral College, which is a relic, of course, that's counter-majoritarian. So what do you have any idea what we're talking about in terms of these people who want to take over America and create a kind of one-party neo-fascist state? Well, I don't. And I think it's very hard to get a hold of those numbers. I mean, it's not the sort of thing that, that you know, as you say, these plans are being drawn up and we get reports about them and they and they get, you know, leaked to the media and or, or I shouldn't say leaked. I mean, I mean, I think Axios piece represents, you know, obviously they, they say at the top of it that it's monthly investigative reporting. But the but, you know, the clearly the plans are being drawn up. Um, do, do they have, do, you know, we keep hearing this number about the 70 million Trump voters who still absolutely believe the big lie. Um, and yet, you know, Tucker Carlson's numbers are around six million, I think, right? So, so is it is it really the case that seventy million Americans absolutely believe this? I simply don't know, and I don't I don't think anybody knows, and I don't know to what degree these hearings can be shifting opinion, and I don't think we'll know that for a while. I think the midterms will be the first real test of that, um, of whether they were able to um, to shift the needle at all, and. And I think there's there. It's just it, it's too complex a set of uh, of cognitive distortions for pollsters to get a hold of. It isn't a simple. I don't think it's a simple. Uh, even as do you think that you know that that Trump won the election? But as I say, I think that those those numbers are shifting anyway. So I certainly don't have a sense of what kinds of numbers we're talking about of adamant Trump supporters still to this day. Um, what I will say is that, you know, speaking of the of the J6 hearing, um, what I find the most horrifying, really, out of all of it is that a lot of the the people who have stood up and, and appeared willingly before the uh, committee um, and who have spoken out against Trump, so I'm thinking people like Rusty Bowers, the Arizona Secretary of State, who said that he believes that the Constitution is divinely inspired, um, frankly, for, you know, those of us who believe in the separation of church and state is actually a frankly worrying statement. Um, and, um, and then he said, you know, he was absolutely uh, um, opposed to what Trump uh, asked him to do uh, in Arizona in terms of overturning the election. And then afterwards, he was asked if he would vote for Trump again. And he said, yes. Bill Barr was deposed, saying that the big lie was bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. He said it over and over and over again. And then after that deposition, after those tapings, when he was running around the country trying to sell his book, people asked him if he would vote for Trump again, and he said yes. So the, I, I, for me, this is the real worry, is, is that, you know, the people who, um, who showed up for the, for the, you know, as you say, it's not the final installment of the J6 hearings, but the end of Act 1, um, we've got the summer interval now, um, the intermission, um, and, and, you know, the, the people like, um, like Pottinger and, and Sarah Matthews, they didn't resign until January 6th. You know, they were with him through the bitter end. So there are a lot of loyalists who were, uh, you know, who are still fighting for this and, and um, did not draw the line to where those, the place where those people um, drew it. So um, 
I think we're in a lot of trouble. I do not think it's the case that that the that the Dobbs decision is going to prove to be some kind of magic feather that lets us all you know that lets liberals know they can fly and that suddenly mobilizes the Democrats out, you know, into the midterms and suddenly we defeat Trumpism with, you know, one mighty blow of American democracy because we actually inhabit a capra film. Um, I don't think that's what's going to happen. And I think this is going to be a bitter and painful fight um, for people keep talking about this, you know, fight for the soul of America. And it is that, um, but, it's a, but it's a fight for, for, you know, control of the country as well. It's a fight for the rule of law. It's a fight for our political system, and um, and it's a bitter and real fight. And I think it's a fight to the to the death in terms of the the fact that one one worldview uh, um, is going to have to be will be comprehensively defeated because they are existentially opposed. Um, and so you know it is a fight between democracy and fascism, and democracy cannot accommodate fascism. And fascism will not accommodate democracy. So either they're going to wipe us out or we're going to have to figure out a way to disable them because we're not in the business of extermination. But that we will have to figure out a way to disable them and we will have to figure out a way to, to, um, to re-educate our country, to rebuild the foundations of our, of our civil society and, our, and, and a liberal democracy and the, and the faith in the rule of law and the trust in the institutions. That's not a that's not a small project, and I'm by no means confident that we can do it. So, just in closing, Sarah, I'm, sorry, I'm very pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, without being Pollyanna-ish, let's end, try and end on something of a positive note. And in terms of the of your new book, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind, and the Lies America Tells, uh, you make the case that American fascism was never exercised, but merely obscured beneath romantic myth making, and nothing was more in that category, then Gone with the Wind. And then prior to that, of course, you had another racist film, Birth of a Nation. So one, there's another film, though, that was fairly recent uh, called Cold Mountain. I don't know whether you ever saw it, but there's a scene in that yeah. where, where there's a, this overworked southern doctor in this, in this antebellum mansion that's been turned into a field hospital, and there are all these poor southern boys with limbs missing, being being amputated, etc. And these southern bells are sort of like Scarlet O'Hara, or scurrying around taking care of the boys. And the doctor says to one of the nurses, "When will these these poor boys, these farmers and blacksmiths and carpenters, ever wake up and realize?" that they're fighting for the plantation owner's right to replace them with slaves. And that sort of leads me to this question about whether there's a strategy on the part of the Democrats to talk about what working Americans have in common and the extent to which they're being manipulated by these romantic myths. Well, look, I can't speak to the Democrat strategy. I mean, sadly, they're not confiding in me yet, but, you know, maybe someday. Um, but um, but I, I agree with you, you know, with, with your implication that we would do well to be framing the debate in those terms and to, to understand that this is a divide and conquer strategy and that it always has been and that that is one of the continuities, you know, as you rightly say. But but having said that, you know, I shouldn't have said I was pessimistic. That's, that wasn't the right word. I'm worried. <laughs> I'm deeply, deeply worried. Um, and I'm by no means confident in the outcome. But I also, you know, taking a deep dive into 160 years of American history and trying to follow this thread from 
the, the aftermath of the Civil War through the myths about it and the lies about it and, and then up to the myths and the lies that we tell today. Um, if you study 150 years of, of American history, all of American history, going, going back to, to the, um, you know, the indigenous people before settler colonialism, you still have to see progress in the United States. And that progress in the United States is gradual, painful grinding toward a true multiracial inclusive democracy. And it is, a, it is always fight, and it is by no means a straight line. But I, I believe that, you know, I believe it's a, I, the way the, the image I was used for it is I believe it's a spiral. It feels like we're circling back, but we're actually, it's the spiral and you edge forward. And each time you edge forward a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer, we're definitely in the circling back moment right now. And so we can see all we can feel is that backwards push and all of that feel of regression and, and loss of momentum and loss of energy. But we can still see the outcomes and progress. We can see the, the, the stats that I just mentioned, the absolutely extraordinary statistics in, uh, in America about su- the overwhelming support for gay marriage, the overwhelming support for interracial marriage, which a few decades ago was simply not the case. And so, so the, the real signs of progress toward multiracial democracy are there, and that means that there are an awful lot of people who will not take this kind of authoritarian or ban turn uh, lying down. My own, my own feeling is that, um, you know, people ask me if I, if I feel like I have hope. And, and I say, you know, I don't, I don't currently have hope because hope feels passive and it feels, uh, at the moment to me, it feels sentimental. I'm speaking on a very personal level, right? But what I have is anger and what I have is determination and activism. And what I have is an absolute defiance and, and feeling that, you know, we're going down with a fight if we go down, you know, and, and I'm not giving them the country. I'm not surrendering the country to them. So we can be deeply worried, but it has to just activate us and it has to make us fight back with everything that we have. And in my case, my weapons are history and facts and storytelling and arguments and persuasion because that's what I know how to do. But I think that we all have to activate whatever, whatever tools we have in our arsenal. We have to, we have to put to work and, we have to recognize that this is that these people are deadly serious, and they are not going to walk away from power. They can, they've got the keys to the inner chamber, and they are determined to walk in and lock the door behind them. And and we have to stop them, however we can. Thank you so much for joining us. And as you've made clear, hope is not a plan. I thank you for joining us here today, Sarah Churchwell. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Churchwell, who's a professor of American Literature and Humanities at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London. She's the author of Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and The American Dream. And her latest book just out is The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. And that was a broadcast of background briefing from July the 4th of 2022. And you've been listening to a retrospective of background briefings 2022 programs on our coverage of the growth of American fascism. And tomorrow we look back on our coverage of Russia's war on Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice Sing it something to me One more